be a part of that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now as we go to your word that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Lord, give us ears to hear what your Spirit would say to us. We thank you, Lord, that your word is not an old antiquated book, but it's a living, breathing word of God. And Lord, I thank you for everyone who's here tonight, none by chance, all by divine appointment. May you minister to every heart. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So Ezra, as we know, we've been, we've been looking at what happened. So Ezra is Ezra and Nehemiah and then Esther are the last three historical books in the Old Testament. And then the rest of the books are prophetic things that take place during that history. We know that from First and Second Chronicles, it was a history uh, being given to the people that were in Babylonian captivity for 70 years who were going to return to Jerusalem. And they were taken into captivity because of their disobedience to God. They started worshiping false idols. God gave them opportunities to repent. We saw ungodly king after ungodly king in Israel. We saw both good and godly kings and ungodly kings in Judah. And eventually God just brought righteous judgment and they were in Babylon for 70 years. When Ezra begins, a decree goes out when King Cyrus becomes king. And it's been 70 years and it had been prophesied they'd be in bondage for 70 years. And he lets them know any of the Jews who want to go back to Jerusalem can go. Now, sad part is that only a small percentage went. We saw the little under 50,000, and more than likely there were at least a million Jews or more, and only about 5% of them went back. Now, keep in mind they had to travel 900 miles, and they, they weren't driving in a car riding on a bus or a train, right? And it would have probably taken a couple months to get back, and they knew what, what they were going to see when they got back was rubble, because Jerusalem and Israel had been taken to the ground. So they're coming back to a desolate place. For many of them, they had never been there before. And then we saw in chapter one, the first thing that they did is when they got there is they laid the foundation for the temple and they built an altar and they started worshiping the Lord, something they couldn't do for 70 years in Babylon. And we saw that the young men were, were worshiping and were excited. And it said the old men were weeping. And the reason they were weeping is when they left, Solomon's temple had been there and it was the most beautiful building on the planet. They come back and it's now all in rubbles in rubble and they're just worshiping in a way in a place that's desolate. And so their hearts were broken, but they started worshiping the Lord. And, and again, worship was being reestablished. The sacrificial system was being reestablished. They observed Passover, but after a short amount of time, some of the people in the land were afraid that the Jews were going to take over. Sound familiar? Some things never change. Amen. And what do they do? They sent note back to the king and they said to him, Hey, you know, if they, if you let them build their building, if you let them build the temple, if you let them rebuild the walls, they're going to start, stop paying you taxes. And they'll get all the people on the other side of the river to pay tribute unto them. And eventually you're going to have an enemy. So the word went to the king and the king sent word back telling them to stop. So they stopped building and for 15 years, they were just living in Jerusalem, no doubt rebuilding you know, their houses, making themselves comfortable, but they're walking by the rubble that was the temple, walking by the broken down wall and not touching either one of them for 15 years. And they'd gotten so complacent and so comfortable and doing what they were doing, the work of God had just completely stopped and nobody was really even thinking about it anymore. So now we see that, uh, we saw last week, in chapter five, and we're going to see it tonight, that the decree went out 
the prophets Haggai and Zechariah came to them and said, hey, you need to start rebuilding the temple. What are you guys doing? Now, the word of God, because in those days it hadn't been completely been written yet, often God would use prophets. So these prophets come and say, you need to get back to the work of God. You need to get back to, to doing what God has called you and commanded you to do. You've been distracted and you're so focused on yourself, you forgot what God called you to do. And you know, that can happen in the life of believers. Amen. We can get so caught up in our career or so caught in that. And I'm not saying those things are even evil necessarily, but we can get so caught up in other things that we don't make God the priority that he, he deserves to be. Amen. One of my favorite Bible verses is for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. It, you know what it means? It doesn't mean Christ is first on the list. It means he is the list. He's first, he's 50th, he's 100th, and he's every number in between. And guys, when you seek first the kingdom of God, when you make him the priority of your life, he will take care of your career. He'll take care of your marriage. He'll take care of everything else when you make him the priority and passion of your life. But what happens so often is we get so busy caught up in the things of the world that the Lord gets further and further down on the list. And if he's anywhere but first, we've got idols we got to put, get rid of. Amen? And so this is where, when we come to Esther 6, and we're taking a look tonight at a response. So last week, and I'm going to read it to you. Um, last week, we saw that the decree was sent out. So again, after they started building this time, so the, the prophets tell them to build, they start building. And the prophets are building with them. They're coming alongside them. Some of the people who were there came along and said, who told you you could rebuild that? And they basically said, the prophets did. So they again told them that we had a decree originally that we were allowed to build it. So the governor sends word back to the king and says, can you find out if they were actually given permission to rebuild? And so we're going to see, I'll, I'm going to read you the letter that was sent to uh, King Cyrus. And it, well, it's actually Darius now. Cyrus is the one that made the decree. Darius is now the king. And we're going to see the letter they wrote to them. Then we're going to see how he responds. And what I love about tonight, and I titled the message, if you're out of your outline, grab it. The, out, the title is going to sound familiar because I used it five weeks ago. And the reason that I did is because five weeks ago, we saw the exhortation to do it. And in tonight's text, we're going to see the fulfillment of it. And I tell the message, God's will, God's way, and God's time. God's will, God's way, and God's time. So guys, we want God's will, but we also know it has to come God's way. God's will, our way, could be the wrong thing. We need to do it God's way. And it's also in God's timing, not ours. And so they've been silent for 15 years, and now it's God's time. And they're responding in faithful obedience and so I want to read really quickly uh, Ezra 5, verses 7 through 17, and then we'll pick up in verse 1 of chapter 6. It says there, they sent a letter to him in which it was written to Darius the king, all peace. Let it be known to the king that we went into the province of Judea to the temple of the great God, which is being built with heavy stones and timber, is being laid in the walls, and this work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke thus to them, who commanded you to build this temple and finish these walls? We also asked them their names to inform you that we might write the names of the men who were chief among them. We're going to tell. We need your names. We're telling. Who told you you could build this building? Now, guys, when we are doing things for the Lord, we are going to face opposition from the world. Amen? 
And when you know you're being obedient to the Lord and you face opposition for the world, you have nothing to fear. You just keep being faithful. Amen? So then he says, verse 11, And thus they returned to us, answering, saying, We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and completed. But because our fathers provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean who destroyed this temple and carried the people away to Babylon. However, the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to build this house of God. Also, the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple that was in Jerusalem and carried them into the temple of Babylon, those King Cyrus took from the temple of Babylon, and they were given to the one named Sheshbazzar, who had been made governor. And he said to him, take these articles, go and carry them to the temple site that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its former site. Then the same Sheshbazzar came and laid a foundation of the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. But from that time until now, it has been under construction and it is not finished. Now, therefore, if it seems good to the king, let a search be made in the king's treasure house, which is, in, which is there in Babylon, whether it is that a decree was issued by King Cyrus to build this house of God at Jerusalem and let the king send us his pleasure concerning the matter." So they send a letter to Darius to educate him. And they're telling him, you've got guys here building a temple and we got their names and here's what they told us. And of course, I love that the prophets actually had the history perfect, how they were drug away and why they were drug away and how they were sent back. Now, Darius, a couple of kings have come and gone and he's the third king after Nebuchadnezzar. And so they come to him and say, hey, Cyrus, supposedly Cyrus sent a decree. Now, mo what do you think most kings would do when someone said, hey, 15 years ago, there was a king who wrote this letter to these people. And uh, hey, you want to find a copy of that for us? Most kings would go, I don't know what you're talking about, and I don't care. And truthfully, I think that's how King Darius would have responded if the hand of God wasn't upon him. Now, we know in the word of God, it tells us, and I'm going to go through the outline right now. Uh, these are the things that we're going to see in the response. We're going to see how, they how the king responds. We're going to see how God will even use a pagan king to bring about his will. One of the verses that I have written here uh, in our notes, it, it talks about, it's verse one and two, it's the outline. It says, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like the rivers of water, and he turns it wherever he wishes. Do you know that God's sovereignty isn't just over believers, it's over unbelievers, amen? So God can cause an unbeliever to do whatever he wants because he's God and they're not, amen? And God can move upon the hearts and even use a wicked man to bring about, he used Nebuchadnezzar to bring out righteous judgment upon Babylon, but we're going to see here that Darius, because he's going to be stirred up by the Lord, fully convinced to my mind, or he won't take the time to do what he does. But it's good to know that even the hands of people in charge of the world today, God's hand is upon them and God is in control. This pagan king is going to become an advocate for God's chosen people. And again, the sovereignty of God rules both over believers and unbelievers alike. Then number two there, when God ceases to be the priority. What happens in your life when God ceases to be the priority? I want to tell you something. When I am counseling people that are really in a bad way, I have one thing that's almost always in common. 
How's your, how's your, how's your prayer life? Oh, well, I, you know, I really don't. How's your time in the Word? What did God show you in your devotions this morning? Oh, do you even know where your Bible is, right? You know, you're not in fellowship. You don't spend time with the Lord. You, you know, you're working 15-hour days, so that's an excuse not to read your Bible. And you're so busy with the things of the world. And then before you know it, because you're busy and you're not praying alone and you're not praying with your spouse now, your marriage is falling apart. Things are, you're struggling, you're stressed out. Why? Because you're doing it all on your own. Amen. God needs to be the priority in our lives. Aren't you glad that we were the priority in Jesus's life when he came to earth? Amen. And he went to the cross of Calvary and suffered and died that we might have eternal life. And how can we just give him an hour and a half a week? When we wake up in the morning, we ought to be, he ought to be the first thing on our mind. And when we go to bed at night, he ought to be the last thing we think about. Amen. And we walk in intimate fellowship with him all day long. And so when he ceases to be the priority, our focus becomes more on ourselves, our personal comfort, our fleshly desires. We cease to be faithful to use the gifts God given us. If you're born again here tonight, you've been given spiritual gifts and you should be using them for his glory. And if you're not, that's not God's fault. Amen. I want to encourage you that the body of Christ you know, for all eyes, where's the hearing? Every one of us has gifts. You have gifts I don't have. I may have gifts you don't have. That's how we minister to each other. It's the word of God that will help us get our focus back where it belongs. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by word of God. And so if you want to grow in faith, you spend more time in God's word. And as you spend time in God's word, your priorities will change. Your passions will change. Your outlook on life will change. You'll have an eternal focus. It will change the way you treat people. You will see people not as an annoyance, but as a, as a divine appointment and a witnessing opportunity. And you'll be more burdened to see people get saved than to do better than them at work. Amen. And so Number two, when God ceases to be the priority. Number three, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Our number, uh, number one motivation for faithfully walking in obedience should be our love for the Lord because of all he has done for us. But we also need to have a righteous fear of God. The Bible says again, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. They interviewed a guy who was a televangelist who was fleecing people for money and he went to prison and he was interviewed in prison and he said in prison he had repented. I hope he had. And it sounds like he might have because the guy said, how in the world could you be doing ministry and fleecing people for tens of millions of dollars and consider yourself? When did you stop loving God? And you know what he said? I never stopped loving God. I just never feared God. And so we need to love God. But we also need to have a fear of God. Amen. Because he's righteous, he's holy, he's just, he's powerful. And so it's, a, it's not a fear of, where we, we run away trembling, it's a fear, it's a reverence, it's an awe of him, and we should be in awe of him, amen? You know what, the reason that we will just go into sin purposely, we don't fear God. We think, well, he'll forgive me, and you know what, that we cheapen his grace, and so in tonight's text, we're going to see we need that, that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, wisdom, and we should have a righteous fear of God. And then finally, we're to be in the world, but not of it. So as believers, we minister to the world, but have no fellowship with it. Again, we love people, love your neighbors, minister to your coworkers. Um, I'm back going to the gym. I'm witnessing to people in the gym. Wherever you go, look for opportunities to share the hope that lies within you. But at the same time, we minister to them, but don't have fellowship with them. We don't join in their sinful behavior. One of the things that drives me crazy is when they'll say, well, Jesus hung out with prostitutes and he hung out with drunkards. No, he witnessed to prostitutes. He didn't hang out with them. Can I get an amen to that? 
He ministered to them. He cared about them, but he did not engage in their behavior. So let's begin there looking at God's will, God's way, and God's time. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like the rivers of water, turning whatever way he wants. So that letter was sent, and now we're going to see Darius. It's going to arrive, and we're going to see what happens. So then King Darius issued a decree that a search be made in the archives where the treasures were stored in Babylon. So right off the bat, this is the hand of God, because this king could have just said, I don't know and I don't care. I didn't write it. I wasn't here. That was 15 years ago. I'm the king here. Are they they a threat? Just tell them, forget it. But he doesn't. So he gets the word saying, this is what they were told. And then he, and then we know Darius isn't out looking for it. So he stirs up his guys and says, look, I want you to go search and find out if that letter was ever written. And I need you to find a copy and I need you to bring it to me. And so again, God's moving on this man's heart. But notice in verse two, it says, and in Akmetha, in the palace that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found and it is in a record that was written. Now, what's interesting is they didn't only just look throughout all of Babylon, but Akmetha was a remote town that was quite far away. That was 6,000 feet high. And uh, often what they would do because of the climate that was there, it was a good place to preserve, uh, you know, scrolls. And so not only did they tear Babylon up looking for it, but then they went all the way to this faraway land, went up and then went through everything and literally found the letter. Now, again, we know that that's the Lord working on Darius's heart because Darius, there's no real advantage for him. Now we're going to see that he's going to respond in a way. And first, we're going to see the letter. So so Darius is going to get the letter. In verse 3 through 5, he's going to read it. And he's going to see what Cyrus had to say. And then he's going to add what he believes needs to be done and send it back to these guys who are stirring everything up. Now, I want you to know that while all of this is happening, and it's going to take some time, they're still building. They didn't stop and say, oh, let's wait and find out if we're going to be allowed to do this. And now keep in mind, it could have been months because not only does, do they have to travel 900 miles to get there, and then they have to give them the decree, and then they searched everywhere, and then they go find it, and then they bring it to the king, and then he reads it, and then he's going to write his response to it. And you know what? I think sometimes as believers, we're like, well, I'm still waiting to hear from the Lord, and until I do, I'm going I'm to be on the sit-on-my-hands ministry. Right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be in the, the big fat sheep ministry, just sitting and getting fed and never doing anything for the kingdom of God. I want to encourage you until you feel like God gives you clear direction on what he's called to do, do something. Amen. Amen? Do something for the Lord. You'll be blessed. So it's surprising to me, again, even though it wasn't found, they continued to look. They were diligent looking for it. They went to this faraway remote city. And again, I, I believe... You know, it makes sense though, because if you read through scripture, we know that Cyrus used that place, Archmetha, as a summer home. And so more than likely the year he wrote it, he took a copy and left it there. 15 years later, they go and find it. And I love that God, have you ever prayed for God to help you find your keys? I'm dead serious. Have you? I have. He answers every time. Can I get an amen to that? People are saying, do you want one of those little things that on your, no, I got Jesus, man. Just pray. You know? <laughs> and it's better when you pray because then you find it and God cares about the details. Amen. 
So they were, they, God brought them to it, and they were continuing to work while they were waiting to hear back, knowing possibly that they could hear, stop. But they were going to work until they were told they couldn't work. So after 15 years, it would have been so easy to quickly give up looking, but instead they were steadfast. And Darius, who is a pagan man, so while, he, so while he kept searching, it was in the hand of God that moved him to do so. And without the degree of the command to stop building, uh, they no doubt would have come back again and told him the same. So they were concerned. They're doing what they're called to do. They know this is God's highest. They heard it from the word of God through the prophets. They're being about it for the kingdom of God. And they're going to wait to hear what the governor has to say. or what the. Now, I, I have an idea too. If he had come back and said, no, they might have kept building anyway. Kind of like, you know, I don't know, when they tell you you can't have church and you just have church anyway, like during COVID, amen? And there are times when you honor what the government tells you, but when the government tells you to disobey God, then you honor God, amen? Now, in this case, they're not going to have to worry about it because we're going to see the response that comes. So it's God is in control. It's his will, his way, and his time. And I love that the leaders responded to God's word by the prophets, kept building even as they were awaiting the response from Darius. And, and my exhortation for all of us is be faithful while you wait. While you're waiting for whatever God has for you, that thing that you're looking for, longing for next, be faithful where you are. Dig a well where you are. Point number two, when God ceases to be the priority. Look at verse three. It says, at first, at, in the first year of King Cyrus, King Cyrus issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. So these three verses are what he wrote. This is the command that he gave when they were all going, when he said, you guys can go back. And then he gave them these orders as to what they could do when they returned to Jerusalem. Here's what it says. Let the house be rebuilt the place where you offered sacrifices, let the foundations of it be firmly laid, its height 60 cubits, that's 90 feet, its width 60 cubits, and with three rows of heavy stones, one row of new timber, let the expenses be paid by the king's treasury. Also let the gold and silver, which and uh, articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple, which is in the Jerusalem, be brought back to that were brought to Babylon, be restored and taken back to the temple, which is in Jerusalem, each to its place and deposit them in the house of God. So that's pretty clear. So Darius is reading this. Okay, Cyrus said they could go back and he said that they, should, they can rebuild the temple and they can rebuild the city. And it also says that the king's going to pay for it. There's some good news. Now, right now they're building it and they're not getting any help from the king. So not only are they going to get permission to keep building, they're also going to see that God is going to provide for them to build it. Not only did Cyrus give permission for the temple, but he commanded that the funding for the work would come from the king's treasury. That would be like the, uh, the government writing us a check to build a church or to build up, you know, a ministry. And that's exactly what's taking place. And this is an ungodly king who's going to use the resources to bless God's people. Again, where God guides, God provides. So after 15 dormant years, rebuilding had ceased. Again, rebuilding had ceased. People were distracted. They're building their own homes. They're seeking personal comfort. The temple walls are all but forgotten and the temple itself. And it was the word of God from the prophets that got them working again. Now, why is this significant? Because if they were not working, if they had never started rebuilding it, then nobody would have ever come along 
and said, how dare you be rebuilding it? And then sent a letter to Darius. And then Darius's letter that's going to come back, we're going to read in a moment, that's going to bless them to continue to do the work. So if they had sat on their hands, it would have never been rebuilt. And it was because they were being faithful that they were being challenged. And because they're being challenged, we're going to see that God is going to bless them. If the people don't respond to God's commands and get back to work, no one looks for the decree. The temple and the walls remain in ruins. They miss out on God's highest. Again, God's will, God's way, and God's timing. Notice it says heavy stones. These were stones that were so massive, they had to be rolled into place. It's interesting that the only portion of Zerubbabel's temple that's still visible in Israel today is one of the corner walls and these these huge, massive stones. So here we have it in the Bible 2,700 years ago. And you can go to Jerusalem today and there, there still lies the ruins of that. The word of God is true. Amen. It's been proven historically, archaeologically, prophetically, any way you want to look at it. So he talks about these huge stones and new timber. So they weren't just, he didn't say, well, you can rebuild it, but find some scraps in the old, you know, that's in the ground and try to, th-. no, he said, no, we're going to bring new timber and you're going to use huge stones. You're going to build this thing right. And we're going to be the ones that pay for it and building the temple, the walls with the best material. And guys, whatever we do for the Lord, we should give the Lord our best, not the rest. Amen. We don't go digging through and give the Lord the scraps of our time. By the way, I would encourage you to have devotions in the morning. If you want to have devotions again at night, knock yourself out. But I find out that if I, ha- if I meet with the Lord at night, I'm just apologizing for the day. Can I get an amen to that? If I begin the day with him, I have a better perspective on the day, and I'm always more awake because I know no one else has ever done this. You ever read your Bible at night and woken up with your face in the Bible? Amen. That's giving God the rest, not the best. Amen. Well, I watched 47 hours at Netflix. Let me give the Lord, right? And that's what happens. So we want to give God the, the best of our time. We want to give him our full attention when we're the most alert. Uh, again, imagine if you gave your wife the last five minutes of the day and fell asleep while she was talking, you'd be in trouble. Amen. Notice he said there too, let the gold and silver articles of the house of God be restored. See, when Nebuchadnezzar came in, he not only leveled the temple, he took all the gold and all the things out of the temple. And we're going to see in chapter five of Daniel, the Belteshazzar is going to be partying and drinking, and he's going to be getting drunk using utensils that belonged in the house of God. And so, and Darius comes after Belteshazzar. So he's going to be drinking. So he's going to say, look, you need to take all those things that, that are for the worship of the Lord and you take them back and use them for the Lord. And again, this is a pagan king telling him to do this. We know that's the hand of God moving on even a man that doesn't know God. Our God is the one who can direct kings. Amen? Verse 6. Now, that was the letter that Cyrus wrote, and now we're going to see what Darius has to say. Now, Teta now, he was the guy that's the governor. He's the one that when, when they were building, like, who told you could build? Who said you're allowed to do this? And then they told him the history. They didn't really believe him. So he sends it back to him. And now he's going to be getting this letter coming back from Darius, telling him what he needs to do. Look what it says in verse six. Now, therefore, Tetanai, governor of the region beyond the river, that's the Jordan, Shethar, Bosna, and the companions, the Persians who are beyond the river, keep yourselves far from there. Now, here's what he's telling them. He says, hey, guys, all you pagans, 
on that side of the river where they are. Stay away from them. Leave them alone. Wow. You know, as believers, it's not bad to have, to have the world told to leave us alone when it comes to us worshiping God. Now, we don't ever want to leave them alone, by the way. Amen? They can leave us alone and let us worship, but we're not going to leave them alone on their way to hell because we love them too much. Amen? So he says, keep yourselves far from there. Verse 7, let the work of the house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build this house of God on its site. Moreover, I issue a decree as to what you shall do for the elders of the Jews for the building of the house of God. Let the cost be paid at the king's expense from the taxes on the region beyond the river. This is to be given immediately to the men so that they are not hindered. Now, this is nothing like any government I've ever heard of. First of all, they answered the letter right away. It's certainly not the DMV. Can I get an amen to that? It's certainly not anything I've ever sent into the government. It takes forever to get it. So they, they, they find it. He responds to it. He sends it back. And then he tells them, here's how they're going to pay for that. By the way, leave them alone. Don't go anywhere near them. Let them build it. And by the way, you're going to pay for it. Tell them the governor. And here's how you're going to do it. You're going to tax your people. All those people beyond the river that were worried about them. Now you get to pay for the temple. How about that? And so they're going to tax them. And then he says, and give them the taxes right away. So as soon as they tax it, you know, they're not going to take it and put it, you know, in, in some fund and forget about it and, you know, go taking private jets with the money, right? What are they going to do? They're going to like, you have to go give it to them the next day, collect the money and go bring it to them immediately so they can use it to build the temple. Look, where God guides, God provides, Amen. Being, all they did was faithfully start building and then God started blessing them. When we're obedient, God is glorified and we get blessed. Amen? We step out in faith. We watch what God will do. And because of their obedience, again, things they never could have imagined. They were just hoping they'd, they'd get something back saying, yeah, we found it. It's okay. They're getting back. Not only did we find it, not only is it okay, they're not allowed to mess with you. They need to stay away from you. You get to build it and they're going to pay for it. Man, we should have sent that letter a long time ago. Amen? Now, verse 9. It says in verse 9 there, And whatever they need, young bulls, rams, lambs, for burnt offerings, for the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, and oil, according to the request of the priests in Jerusalem, let it be given to them day by day without fail. Man, this is just getting better every five minutes. Look what happens. Now you're going to pay for the temple. And oh, by the way, when they make sacrifices, they're using your animals. We're just going to take your animals. You're going to bring them over there and they're going to sacrifice them to their God. Can our God, our God can do exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask or think. There are times when we just, we think our God is so small and we confine him to things and we think that God can't do it. But again, I'm going to keep repeating this. None of this happens if they don't start building first. The Jordan River didn't part till they put their feet in it. Amen? You know, too often we sit back and we say, well, I want God to use me and I want God to use me. God doesn't steer parked cars, man. Put that thing in gear and start moving. Can I get an amen to that? We, we, we need to be about it so God can direct us and how he wants to use us. Here I am, send me, right? He's looking for people that will be available. And as they were being faithful, God is just blessing them more than they could have ever possibly imagined. Let it be given to them that day without fail, day by day without fail. If they need, and we're going to see at the end of the chapter, 
They're going to eat a whole lot of animals. And guess who's bringing them? The pagans are going to bring them so they can sacrifice them to the Lord. Tetanau's ejections, along with the other governors, passed the river, and they were the ones that inquired of the king, and they thought they were going to put a stop to all this, and now they're finding out you're not going to be around it, you can't touch it, you need to leave them alone, and you're going to pay for it, and you're going to bring them the animals when they need them. He's like, man, we should have never sent that letter. God's will, God's way, and God's time. Amen? Praise the Lord for that. Verse 10, and then it says, that they may offer sacrifices of sweet aroma to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Now, this is a pagan king, and yet does he not sound like a believer in that verse? What, he, look what he says. That they may offer sacrifices of sweet aroma to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Now, this may be his motivation, but that's okay. What he's saying is, look, you need to let them worship the God of heaven. And no doubt, look, everybody knew who Yahweh was. Everybody knew who the God of the Jews were. They know the stories of history, how God would bring them great victories when they were outnumbered. So often pagan kings, we've, if you're here on Sundays, going through Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar sees him in the, your God is God. Here's Daniel interpreting, your God is God. See, the power of God is proof to other people when they see it in your life and ours. We're the only Jesus some people will ever see. And when we live out loud for the Lord, it's going to cause people's eyes to be open to there is something about your God. I'll never forget when I was working in San Jose and I had someone come who was mocking my faith a lot. And then when I went through the, I was in the hospital for nine months in 2009 from a bot surgery after being in a coma for 17 days. And I was in the hospital for nine months and they didn't think I was going to live. And I, when I got out, I weighed 135 pounds. I weighed 242 right now. So take 107 pounds off of me. And when I came back to work, I came by to visit and I was walking with a cane. And, and then I came back after that. And she finally said, you know what? The first time you preach at your church, I'm coming. Because I don't know if, there's, if there is a God, it's your God, Dave, because I see what God did and how God healed you, so I know it's your God. Now, guys, when, when God does something great, God gets all the glory, amen? And, but, we, but no one's going to know if we don't tell them that we're believers and we're following in the Lord, if we're unashamed of our testimony, if we don't share our faith, we want to live in such a way that when people see something changed about you and what changed about us is Jesus Christ, Amen. And the world needs to know it, and we should not hide our light under a bushel. Amen? So the pagan king wants them praying for him. And again, the very people that will mock you, oh, my, my dad's got cancer. Who do I know that prays? Go to the Christian at work. You pray, right? Can you pray for my, my dad? Can you pray for my... By the way, it's a great opportunity when you hear that somebody's going through a trial. Offer to pray for them. Even the person that's... The hardest of heart often will want you to pray for them when they're in a place of desperate need. Now, the next two verses make it clear how serious he is about his command. He's going to let them know what will happen if they don't do what he says. And Darius is a guy who, when he had first taken over Babylon, brought 3,000 guys out. And, and many people believe it's, it's a crucifixion. But what they talk about is raising up a large board. We're going to see it in a couple of verses. And, you know, pressing them through it, right? Like spearing them through it. And some people believe it's actually crucifixion. Now, so watch what happens. So he's going to make sure, by the way, here's what you're told to do. And by the way, here's what's going to happen if you don't do it. Look at verse 11. 
And he says there also a decree that whoever alters this edict, let a timber be pulled from his house and erected and let him be hanged on it. And let this house be made of refuge heap because of this. And may the God who causes his name to dwell there destroy any king or people who put their hand or alter it to destroy the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, issue a decree, let it be done diligently. Wow. Tell me God's not on this guy. There's no way he comes up with this on his own. The Lord, again, he's the one that moves kings. It's the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and he turns it whichever way he wishes. And Darius lets him know, if you don't do what I'm telling you, here's what's going to happen. We're going to come to your house. We're going to find the biggest beam. We're going to hang you on it. After you're dead, we're going to burn your house to the ground and leave an ash heap there. I don't think I'd even be looking at those people wrong when I walk by. I mean, and Darius was a man that they knew would do it. He wasn't a man who made veiled threats. And so this exhortation, he's putting the fear of God in them because he lets them know and let their God be the one who brings judgment. A strong degree was severe punishment for those who violated his command. According to uh, Adam Clark, he's a commentator. There's some debate again if the man was first flogged at his house and then hung to death impaling him in an early form of crucifixion. It wouldn't surprise me if that was the case. So Darius was the type of man that to see such brutal executions through to completion. And according again to Herodotus, as I talked to you a minute ago, he impaled 3000 Babylonians when he got there. So the word was out. Then he tells them, let it be done diligently. What he's saying is, look, what I've told you to do, be about it. I don't want to hear tomorrow that you haven't done it. When you get this letter, do what I told you to do. Let it be done diligently. And you know what? As believers, let us use the gifts God has given us and let it be done diligently. Amen? If we're going to serve the Lord and share our faith with others and use the gifts God's given us, may we do it with all of our heart. At the end of it all, the king of the mightiest empire on earth commanded that the temple be finished by the Uh, returned exiles without interference funded by the empire and the taxes of the very people that sought to make them stop. And you know what? God used the king to bring about his will. But again, that doesn't happen if the people don't obey first. If they hadn't started building it, none of this would have happened. The letter would have never went. The letter would have never come back. And I think sometimes some of us may get to heaven and we're going to have like the parable of the talents right? One had five talents, one had two, one had one. There's two different ones. And, and, you know, the guy with five talents goes out and brings back 10. The one with two talents goes out and brings back four. The person with one talent buries it in the ground. And when his master comes back, he says, well, I know you're austere, man. And I just want to make sure you don't lose anything. Here's your talent back. And he takes the talent and gives it to the one with 10 talents and punishes him. Guys, God didn't give us gifts so we could bury them. Amen. He wants us to take what he's given us and use it for his glory, and may we be diligent and be about it. So point number three there, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So God had ceased to be the priority, and when they made God the priority again, when they responded to the word of God, that God blessed them, God protected them, God's providing for them, he's doing exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask or think, and now we're going to see the necessity that we operate in the fear of God. Verse 13, it says, then Tetanel, governor of the region beyond the river, Sheth Bonzna, and their companions diligently did what the king, what King Darius had sent. So it's one thing to deliver a letter 
And especially when they're telling them, you need to leave them alone. You need to let them do what they want to do. Let them build all their stuff. Yeah, it's going to be a threat to you in the future. And you're going to pay for it. And they're taking your animals. Now, it's one thing to read it, another thing to do it. And I truly believe it's the fear that made them do it. It might have been out of respect for the king, like, well, he's the king. We better do it. But I also think it's, remember how he killed those 3,000 guys and ran the stuff through them and he just told us he can do the same to us? Just give them their stuff. Fear of God, right? In this case, the fear of the king. And we too should live in a way recognizing that our God is a loving God, a gracious God, and a merciful God, but he's also a righteous judge. Amen? You know, as believers, do we sin every day? What's the answer? Thought life, everything we do. But as believers, we should hate our sin. I'll tell you the sin I hate the most, the sin in my life. How about you? That's the one that grieves me the most. I, I, don't, I, I don't have time to be a sin sniffer. I got to, you know, I'm looking for everybody else's sin, right? We don't need to do that. You don't want to, but, and, and as believers, I think the closer we get to the Lord, the more we hate our own sin, amen? And it should grieve us. And so I, I just love the, the motivation here should be to be faithful to what the Lord has called you to do. We should do what we do because we love the Lord and we're so blessed by all he's done for us, but we also need to have a fear of God and we need to recognize, and this is one of the lies of the enemy. He'll tell you to go ahead and sin anyway, because God will forgive you. And the truth is, if you sin and you repent, God will forgive you, but the consequences may be heavy. Amen. It's better to be a holy and faithful and obedient than to, well, I'll just do it anyway. And then ask God to forgive me. And that's not really truly a repentant heart. So the motivation for their faithful diligence could have been, again, the respect for King Darius, but it could have been also their fear. And it's probably a bit of both. And we too should obey God because we love him, but also because we have a fear of the Lord. Verse 14. So the elders of the Jews built and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Edo. And they built and finished it according to the commandment of God of Israel, according to the command of Cyrus, Darius, Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Now, Artaxerxes is going to be the king after Darius, and we'll see him in Nehemiah. And so Nehemiah is going to be the one that finishes building the wall. And so all of this is taking place under their reign, and God is blessing them. Now, from the time that they went back, it's going to be 20 years before the temple is built. But 15 of those years, they were sitting there doing nothing. They built for a short time, about a year, then they stopped building, and now they came back. And once they put their hands to the plow, they got it done in four years. So they could have, they could have sat there 400 more years until, until they listened to the word of God. That was the key to all of this. They listened to Haggai. They listened to Zechariah. It says in the text that Haggai and Zechariah picked up hammers and worked with them. And you know, so they responded to the word of God. So the, the thing that really directs us into doing what God has called us to do it's the word of God. Amen. And when you start stepping out and obeying the word of God, God will do exceedingly abundantly above all you can ask or think. So it says the word from the prophets, they exhorted them to begin building again, to move from focusing on their own comfort, to be faithful to the call of God, to remind them why they came back to Jerusalem. Why did, and so they're in Jerusalem and the temple's just sitting there and it's rot. And they're not doing anything. Now, you know why you came back here, right? To rebuild that. And you've been here 15 years. What are you doing? Guys, we need to remember while we're on this planet. Amen? Why are we here? Is this our home? What's the answer? We're aliens here. 
This is not our home, and we're here for a reason, to know him and to make him known. Amen? We're, we're here to fulfill the Great Commission. That's why we live and move and breathe. That's why we're on this planet, is to reach a lost and a dying world. And what happened was they had forgotten why they were in Jerusalem, and they were reminded by the word of God. And sometimes we forget what the priority should be for us, and Lord willing, we'll be reminded by the word of God. Amen? Guys, the reason we live on this planet, again, is to know him, to serve him, to make him known, to lead others to him. And a faithful walk will be led by the Holy Spirit and the word of God. Now look what it says in verse 15. Now the temple was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, which is in the sixth year of the reign of Darius. So it was, about, it was literally about four years from when Darius said, let them build, give them what they need, and they began building. Again, the, the it took four years. It was a big job. And sometimes I think we can grow weary if we don't see immediate fruit in ministry sometimes. Amen? Last Thursday, I wasn't here because I was at a pastor's conference with about a thousand pastors. And I know, and you know, you get to meet different people when you're there and you hear a lot of this. You'll, you'll, I, I've got, I'm a church planner, so I love church planters. And I met guys, and by the way, Mickey, who we support up in Alaska, had some meals with him. And some of these guys, you're talking to them, and they're like, yeah, I went to this town, and, and uh, I've been there four years, and there's like 12 people coming to the Bible study, and I'm working a full-time job, and I'm exhausted, and I just want to quit. And what Pastor Chuck would always say to everyone, do, it, do another year, and then come back and talk to me. And they come back the next year, and they say, I want to quit. Uh, do it one more year. And they come back, do it one more year. And then finally, you know, whenever it happens, they're like, praise the Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm good. You know what I mean? But the point is that sometimes when we go out to serve the Lord, you know, they, they, you have visions of grandeur. I was talking to one guy, he goes, I thought when I planted this church within six months, I'd be doing crusades and, you know, I'd have this massive building. We'd have a school and a radio ministry. And, you know, I would tell people, all the buses will wait while everybody comes forward to get saved. You know, that mentality. And he goes, and here I am, I'm ministering to three people. I always remind him, it's a blessing to minister to one person. And don't worry about the empty chairs, minister to who's there. And the one guy that said he had like 12 people, I said, so 12 people get up on Sunday, they could go to any church in the world and they come to listen to you teach the Bible, you better be ready, bro. Amen? So it took four years. And the fruit comes in God's time. We don't produce the fruit, God does. Some plant, some water, some reap a harvest, but that's all God. And he gets all the glory, amen? And if anything good happens, it's not because we're good, it's because he's good. He uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. So even if God does use you in a mild way, get over yourself. It's not because of you, it's in spite of you, amen? We're just being available and let the Lord use us for his kingdom and his glory. Let's finish up here. Then verse 16, it says... There's something I want to do at the end if we have time. Then the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the descendants of the captivity celebrated this dedication of the house of God with joy. To remember when they first got there, there was nothing there. And all they did was lay the foundation. And if you were here for Ezra 1, then they built a little altar. And what did they do? Everybody was worshiping because they were no longer in Babylon, surrounded by idols, and they got to make sacrifices to the Lord again. And they saw the foundation and they envisioned that the temple would one day be there. And they were so excited and everybody was worshiping together and they celebrated Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and they were rejoicing that they got to worship God. 
Well, if they felt that way when they were looking at a bunch of rubble, how excited do you think they were when it was finished? When they look up and there's the temple in all of its majesty, according to the plan God had created, when all the implements are back within the temple, when it's going to be a full-blown functioning temple with sacrifices every morning and every night, all the feasts will take place. It will be a place they go to worship the Lord where God will be glorified. And so for them, it's like, it doesn't get any better. And notice, I love the word that's used here in verse 16, the dedication of the house of God with joy. I can think nothing better that brings joy than walking with the Lord. Amen? After 20 years of being there, the temple's built. How much more joyous would the completion again be? Notice what it says in verse 17. They didn't just complete the building, right? Oh, we got a new building. It's up. Now let's just go live our lives. Look at verse 17. And they offered sacrifices at the dedication of the house of God. 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, as well as a sin offering for all uh, all Israel's 12 tribes, 12 male, 12 male uh, um, goats, according to the number of the 12 tribes of Israel. So they're going to sacrifice 712 animals in a day. Now, when you read past this in the Bible, a hundred of them are bulls. Are bulls kind of big? Yeah. So you imagine dragging in, you're, you're slaughtering animals. Now, I think when we think of a priest sometimes, you know, you think of some guy who's like all clean and fresh in some kind of black robe. He's more like a butcher down at Albertsons, right? I mean, the guy's up front, you know, he's covered in blood. It looks like he just delivered a baby, right? And he's just, you know, just kill this, and then blood and pouring the basin and making sacrifice. And they're, you know, and, and, and some of them, they put them on the altar, depending on the sacrifice that it was, and they burn the entire animal. Some of it, they take portions of it when it's a, you know, a fellowship offering, and they keep portions of it. And they're doing this. Now, if you do all that in one day, if you do it all in 10 hours, that's 70 animals an hour. That's an animal every, every, less than every minute. And they're just sacrificing these animals. Now, some people read this kind of stuff and they're like, why does the Bible have to be such a bloody mess? Why is that true? If you read through Leviticus, it's the bloodiest book in the Bible. Why? Because without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness for sin. Why do it, now, after they have the 712 sacrifices, do you know the next morning they had to have the... You think if you did 712 the day before, you might get a day off? No. The next morning, they're doing the morning sacrifice and the evening sacrifice, and here's why. Because a sacrifice that can never fully forgive must be repeated every day. See, all it was, it wasn't true forgiveness. It was an act of faithful obedience pointing to the one who would come and forgive. All those sacrifices were a foreshadowing of the one who was to come. The blood of bulls and goats cannot forgive us, cannot redeem us, but it points to the one who will. So were they supposed to sacrifice? Yes. If we were living in those days, would we be sacrificing? Absolutely. If we're obeying God. Amen. They probably didn't fully understand what it meant, but they were being obedient to the Lord. Now here's the good news. When Jesus came, he is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world And when he suffered and died, and he was put not on an altar, but on the cross, and when his blood was shed for us, in the end, he said, it is finished. To tell us that I paid in full. And that means no more sacrifices ever again, because the price has been paid. Thank you, Jesus. Amen? 
So all of those sacrifices were always pointing to him, and it was a constant reminder that the covering of sin comes at a great price. Somebody has to die for you to be forgiven, or at least for your sins to be pushed forward to the one who would forgive you. And so every single time you would think, man, that poor lamb did nothing. I, I, that lamb has to die because of me. Well, of course, that's pointing to Jesus. He's the lamb of God. Amen. And so all these animals are being sacrificed and it showed uh, forgiveness came in a price. It pointed again to the one who would forgive daily sacrifices, morning and evening. And praise God that we don't have to do that. I'm glad we're not dragging bulls in here on, on Sabbath. Amen? We must never take sin lightly, though. And I think that's what the bloody mess just was a reminder. That why, why is this? You know, can you imagine a little kid? Why are we, why are we having to kill these animals, Dad? Why, why, why do we have to take our sweet little lamb that we, you know? And, and the, the, why, why? Because of our sin. Because what we did. But, but why, why, is, why is the lamb paying for it? Because the lamb is spotless. It's a picture of a holy sacrifice that's being paid for us. And I'll tell you what, that's a lesson they would never, ever forget. Amen? The nation had gone through a time of rebuke for their sin. Now they're back in the land, but not like it was before. Because sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking, you know, they come back to the land, but it's still not where it was. There's something missing from the, um, from the temple. Does anybody know what it is? Ark of the Covenant. They don't have it. So they have all the other implements, but they don't have the ark. So they can make sacrifices, but they can't go in on the day of atonement and sprinkle the blood on the ark, at least not right now. And so it's, it's the place God has for them, but something's still missing. And again, when, when, we, when we go out and we sin and we act contrary to the Lord and we ask God for forgiveness, when we come back, there's restoration, but there's also can be consequences. And we need to be mindful of that. Please don't take sin lightly. I mean, I, I, if anybody besides me hear that in your ear, Go ahead and do it. God will forgive you. Anybody ever hear that? Go ahead and do it. God will forgive you. Go ahead and do it. God will forgive you. He's, he's a God of grace. And then I hear people tell me, Pastor Dave, dude, I'm under grace, man. I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. I saw, I saw I guess I'm going to be under grace when I knock you out in Jesus' name. You know what I mean? It's just frustrating. It's just frustrating when I hear people say that I'm under grace because grace is freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. Amen. Amen? God's grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. It's not cheap. It wasn't, you know, it's something that we should be mindful of. Notice what it says in verse 18 as we're finishing up here. It says, they assigned the priests to their divisions, the Levites to their divisions over the service of God in Jerusalem as is written in the book of Moses. So notice they're being serious about this. So the temple's been built and now they've made sacrifices, but now they're putting everybody in their place. They're going to have Levites there. They're going to have the priests there. It's going to be ongoing. It's not like they just put up a building and you can go look at it like it's a museum. And it's not enough, you know, to have a relationship with God, but we need to be busy about it, using the gifts he's given us. In this case, all these are going to come back and it's going to be a fully functioning temple and they're going to be faithful to their calling. Last point, we are to be in the world, but not of it. Watch what happens. And the descendants of captivity, kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. Now, I love this. So they just built the temple. Not long after that, they keep the Passover. Now, in the Bible, the Passover was a constant reminder 
an annual reminder of their deliverance out of bondage in Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. They've spent 430 years in bondage because of their own sin. They cried out to God. God sent a deliverer in Moses. We know the plagues came upon Egypt. And the last one was where Passover came from. And it's where they had to apply the blood of the lamb in the shape of a cross and the angel of death would pass over. If you did not apply the blood of the lamb, by the way, again, they inspected the lamb for four days. They would bring the lamb in. They would slit the lamb's throat. They would put it in a basin. That wasn't enough. You couldn't just kill the lamb. You had to apply the blood of the lamb. And the same is true for us. It's not enough that Jesus died for you. You must be applied to your life. Amen? And it's, it's not enough to say, well, I believe that he died. And I believe that he, his blood was shed. Yeah, but have you asked for forgiveness? Have you surrendered your life to him? Has the blood of the cross been applied to your life? So when it was applied in the shape of a cross, the angel of death passed over and then they were delivered out of bondage. So every time they had Passover, they were remembering how they were delivered out of bondage. For us today, it's communion. And every time we have the Lord's Supper, we're remembering that we too were delivered out of the bondage of sin and death because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Amen? So for them, Passover was looking back in remembrance, and communion for us is looking back in remembrance for what Christ did for us. Amen? And it's a constant reminder, and that's why it's good that it needs to be celebrated again and again, and we need to take the Lord's Supper again and again. Verse 20, for the priests and the Levites had purified themselves, they're following all of the commands in the, in the Old Testament, all of them were rit- ritually clean and they, were, uh, slaughter- they slaughtered the Passover lambs for all the descendants of the captivity, for their brethren, for the priests and for themselves. So they were making sacrifices for every family that was represented. And they were making sacrifices for themselves because we all need someone to pay the price for us. And then the children of Israel who had returned from captivity ate together with all who had separated themselves from the filth of the nations of the land in order to seek the Lord God of Israel. Now, now that's a pretty heavy duty. They, they ate with those who, there were some who stayed in the land when they went into captivity. It was a small number. And they were still there when they came back. And now they're all joined together and they're worshiping the Lord. But notice they separated themselves from the filth of the nations. What they're saying is that, yeah, when they are communing with the Lord, they're not in fellowship with the world. The world is not, those who are idol worshipers and immoral and ungodly, who had not repented and wanted nothing to do with God, were not welcome into this place of worship and fellowship. And as believers, I mean, we minister to the world, but have no fellowship with it. And so we want to we be salt and light to those who are lost. But those should not be the people you seek for godly counsel. Amen? Those, those should not be the people you hang out with. You minister to them, but have no fellowship with them. They're two different things. I would certainly have a coworker to my house that doesn't know the Lord and have dinner with them and talk to them about the Lord. I would absolutely do that. But when these 20 of these guys are going you know, out to lunch and they're going to some place, yeah, I'm not going, man. Why? Because bad company corrupts good morals. Amen? We want to minister to the world, but have no fellowship with it. And finally, it says in verse 22, and they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy for the Lord made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God and the God of Israel. Notice it says the Lord made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them. See, this is what we said in the beginning. The reason they were so blessed, God had moved on his heart to show them favor 
to show them kindness. He was a tool in the hand of the Lord. Notice they didn't only do Passover, but they remembered the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, leaven represents sin. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was a reminder of the call to purity and living a holy life. And so as they were doing that, they were doing that separated from the world. Obedience, purity, and joy. Some people think you can only be happy if you don't worry about obedience. I'm going to go out and tie one on. I'm going to party it up. Yeah, I'm going to have a lot of fun, right? Puking in the gutter with a headache the next day. How's that working out? Amen? And we always remember the fun part and we forget the puking in the gutter, right? But the reality is, do you know the greatest joy you can have is walking in the center of God's will? The greatest joy you can have is walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. The greatest joy we can have doesn't come from being drunk with wine, but being filled with the Holy Spirit. We don't need spirits, we have the spirit, amen? It doesn't come from feeding your flesh, it comes from denying your flesh and surrendering fully to the Lord. So in closing, then we got a few minutes, I wanna do something quickly. So God's will, God's way, and God's time, the king of hearts, the, king, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, like the rivers of water, he turns in whichever way he wishes. God uses a pagan king to bring about his will. So God can use an unsaved president to bring about his will. And we need to pray for that. When God ceases to be the priority, our focus becomes on ourselves. What is it, if we took your time in the day, and you could do this yourself, you didn't have to tell anybody, how much time do you spend doing things that draw you away from the Lord, and how much time do you spend doing things that draw you closer to the Lord? And for some people, it's 10 hours over here and 10 minutes over here. And then we wonder why we're struggling, amen? Thirdly, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. You know, we need to have a righteous fear of God, his holiness, his power, his sovereignty, and recognize just the greatness of the God that we serve. And the word to be in the world, but not of it. Come out and be separate, the Bible tells us. We need to be reminded daily of how we got here. So as we close, we will not be having church next Thursday. It is Thanksgiving. It's the only Sunday or Thursday all year we don't have service. It's the one time I really want to encourage you to go be with your families. And I really want to encourage you, those of you who have unsafe family members, start praying for them right now. Then next Thursday, you're going to have an opportunity to share the Lord with them. Amen? It's an opportunity. But before we go, we've got about eight minutes or so. I would love for people just to share anything that you're thankful for. And then we'll pray as we close. What are you thankful for that happened this year or something that's going on in your life that you just want to say, man, I thank God for this? Anybody, raise your hand. Krista. Amen to that. Amen to that. Anybody else? I'm thankful that I'm in an environment at work that I can shine. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It's a lot of weight. Amen. Praise God. Anybody else? Yes, sir. I'm so thankful that I've made my way back after scores away. Praise God. Amen. Last Easter was the first day back. I was baptized when I was 21 years old back in uh, Miami. And uh, I got out of the service and I was with my family and turned back my ways. And it took a long time. Um, I'm just thankful. Welcome home. Amen. Praise the Lord. Anybody else? Yes. Pete. Just really grateful to be living in, in America mm. when everything seems to be in jeopardy. Amen. And to have the ability to interact with you know, brothers and sisters. Amen. And, and just be Amen. open 
Amen. Anybody else? You two over here don't have anything to be thankful for? Definitely thankful for my wife. Jonathan. Amen. 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 Yes. I'm thankful that my granddaughter last year was at LA Unified and this year she's at a Christian school. Praise God. And I'm thankful that um, we still have the freedom to share the gospel. Amen. Even on the street. Amen. Yes. Sue. I'm thankful that we have this church community Amen. and your uh, wisdom and the way you teach us is tool in the hand of the master. To God be all the glory. Right, right. Amen. But I'm so thankful for that. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. Anybody else? Tim and then the other Tim. Go ahead, Tim. Amen. Praise God for a godly mom. Tim. Amen. And keep praying for Hillcrest. Thanks, bro. Praise the Lord. I appreciate that. Alberto. Marlea. I'm thankful that God is gracious and merciful to me, desires to be resident in the Amen. Amen. Isn't it such a get to? It's just such a get to. There's just nothing better. There's nothing better than being where you're supposed to be, doing what you're supposed to be doing, and knowing that's where you are. What a joy that is. Anybody else? Okay, well, let's close in prayer. Let's pray. And the worship team will come on up. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. And Lord, we have so much to be thankful for. And we're thankful for the cross of Calvary. We're thankful that we're redeemed and forgiven and adopted. We're thankful that our names are in the Lamb's Book of Life. And we're thankful for all these things that people just shared that they're thankful for. Lord, we're thankful, Lord, that we have the promise of eternal life. We're thankful, Lord, that in the end, we know that you win. We're thankful, Lord, that we don't have to live this life on our own, that you filled us with your Holy Spirit. I'm thankful, Lord, for every person in this room, that we're more than friends, we're family, because we have the same dad. We're all filled with the same spirit, and we're all headed to the same heaven. And so, Lord, I pray your blessings upon next Thursday as we celebrate Thanksgiving. I pray for divine appointments in our family. I pray for opportunities to share the hope that lies within us to people in our family that don't know you. I thank you for our brother who came back to the Lord. I thank you for the fact that you can bring wayward children home. We're thankful for godly parents. We're thankful for a church where we can serve. We're thankful for your mercies and your grace. We're thankful that you put us in workplaces where we can be salt and light. Lord, may we never cease to thank you. We praise you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said.